0: Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit. We're back in the book of Romans, chapter 4. Thank you again to Pastor Mike, uh, going into Jeremiah, talking about missions. Uh, But back into Romans. Seems like everybody's in Romans these days. Talking to my uh, pastor friend, Paul Buckley, over at King of Grace. They're doing Romans. They've been in Romans for a while. Uh, I was talking to Mark Guilford, who's doing Romans over at Common Ground in a Bible study. Friday morning group's doing Romans Romans is everywhere. I don't know why, but it just seems to be the time for that. And we've been talking through, we're actually in chapter 4, verse 13, going to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And we've been looking at the righteousness of God that we receive by faith. The righteousness of God that we receive by faith. And he had talked about human depravity, how sin... Um, it separates us from God, puts us under the wrath of God, that no ritual, no good work, nothing we do can earn our status of reconciliation before God, but God gives us a righteousness that we receive by faith. And we started two weeks ago looking at chapter 4, looking at Abraham in particular, that Abraham is this foundational figure for not only Christianity, but for all monotheistic religions in the world, basically, um, and he stands out as an example of faith. Abraham is counted righteous by faith, by faith alone. Uh, now, what is faith? We, we use that word, word a lot of, you know, often. Uh, we've been talking a lot about faith, but really, what is it? It's probably one of the most overused words, and we're not exactly sure how do you put a definition on the word faith if I say faith someone may receive that something in a totally different way that is meant by scripture Uh, we use the term in popular culture remember when the Red Sox were ready to win the World Series and they were you know sort of struggling this is with Ortiz and remember the phrase keep the faith right keep the faith don't doubt that the Sox can make it and win and beat the Yankees and go on to the World Series or whatnot, right or we might say to someone, have a little faith. We just use that in a very general term. What do we mean by that? Uh, well, biblically speaking, two different words are used. In the Hebrew, of course, is emunah. Um, I mean, obviously different words used in the Bible. Now, it's not that it's obvious that it's "emuna." Most of you guys probably didn't know that. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it's pistis, which sounds like a swear word, but it's not. All right, okay. So "emuna" sounds so much more beautiful than that. But the word basically means trust, belief confidence in something. In fact, the word, English word confidence literally means with faith, confide, to put your trust in something. And here in chapter 4, he uses Abraham as an example of faith for us to look at and define what we mean by faith. Look with me at Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 13, going to the end of the chapter. We read this. For the promise to Abraham... And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and was delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study and application of his word uh, this morning. Here's where we're going. Uh, The idea is Abraham's faith is an example to us of faith in Jesus Christ in particular. 13 to 15, faith is voided. It's null and void when it depends on the law. 16 and 17, faith has God's grace and guarantee as its object. And then verses 18 to 21, faith exists even when we cannot see now, even though we can't see it now. And finally, 22 to 25, faith today is explicitly in the work of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going this morning. First, that faith is voided when it depends on the law. He says here, the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, read on to chapter 20-ish or 22-ish, you'll read the whole story of Abraham. And God lays out these amazing promises to Abraham. And he receives them by faith. He receives the promises of God by faith. And this blessing, he says here, didn't come through the law. In fact, when, usually when you think of the law, you think of the Torah, which didn't come to hundreds of years later, four or five hundred years later, um, through Moses. Didn't come through obedience. It didn't come through some ceremony like circumcision. It didn't come through a long life of good works. In fact, the promise comes as God is calling Abraham out of his uh, pagan background there. It's a righteousness that comes from faith. Abraham simply believed God at his word. He trusted the promise that God gave him. And it says here it was counted to him. It was given to him to be declared righteous in the sight of God. As he says here, it's, if, if it's the adherence to the law, adherence is to hold on to, if, if it's those who hold on to the law, if they're the ones that receive righteousness, well, then faith is null and void. The promise is void. It doesn't mean anything. Then it's really a work. It's a wage. You're getting paid for what you have done. God, I've done these ten different things. Now you owe me. Right? It's a payment. It's a wage. But that's not how it's received. The salvation, it's righteousness, this right standing before God is something received only through faith. And he clarifies again, verse 15, the law brings wrath. And we saw that through chapters 1 and through 3. Uh, Not that the law is bad. Of course, the law is good. The law is the standard that God wants us to live by. God calls us as human beings to live by. The problem with the law is we continue to fail. We can't obey it. Nobody obeys the law. In fact, if you talk to somebody who says, I think I pretty much obey God's law, just ask them this. Do you love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? I don't know anyone that could agree that they do that perfectly. But let's say they say they do. Okay, also, do you love your neighbor as yourself? No differently. And again, anyone that can say they do those two things perfectly is either self-deceived or just outright lying, right? I mean, we all fall, fall short. And so ultimately, when we break God's law, there is a judgment that follows. We try and we fail. He says at the end, where there is no law, there is no transgression. His point is not to say there's no sin. He's simply saying that the law, just all it does, it doesn't give us righteousness. It just clarifies it. When God says in the Torah, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not uh, lie, and so forth, all he's doing is clarifying what is right and what is wrong and making it clear that we fail. It doesn't actually make us righteous. It just clarifies that we fail to do it. Said he receives it by faith. Just imagine Abraham. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the story of Abraham in Genesis. But imagine he's sort of this nomad in the desert. These are almost prehistoric times. So this is a long, long time ago. Um, again, he comes from a basic polytheistic background. And he is this sort of desert-dwelling nomad. And God calls him. He senses the word of God to him. Go. Leave home, leave your family, leave your people, and go to a different land that you've never been to before, Abraham. And I am going to there give you that land and make your descendants as many as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. You're going to be the the father, the progenitor of a multitude and multitude of people, which, by the way, is true. Uh, Again, Abraham ultimately does produce what is today Israel among many other nations as well. Many modern day Arabs, not all, but many would look to Abraham also through Ishmael. But he says, more than that, not only are you going to have this huge, huge, huge family of descendants, you're going to bless all the nations. All the nations, even the ones that don't descend from you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed by you. Now, Abraham trusts God and goes. Things don't always go his way. In fact, it's a very much an uphill battle. He doesn't have any kids through his wife, Sarah, until he's 100 years old. We'll look more at that in a bit. He does have Ishmael, but that was sort of his own sort of maneuvering as opposed to trusting in God. Uh, ultimately, he has his one son, Isaac, and God says, sacrifice him. Right? So, end the very line that I promised that would go through. But all throughout it, he believes God. And again, eventually God delivers. He gives birth to his son Isaac, Isaac to Jacob and Esau, Jacob to the 12 tribes. And Israel, throughout history, blesses the world, and particularly through Jesus Christ. The whole world, all the nations, even those who don't descend from Abraham, are blessed by him. But here's his point. Faith is voided and the promise is made null if it also depends on the law, (laughs) It's sort of one, one or the other. You can't really mix the two. Uh, you know, which one are you really, truly depending on to save you? Faith or your own goodness? Your rituals and ceremonies or what Christ has done for you on the cross? Now, some people might say, well, Pastor Rick, I'm hedging my bets, all right? So I got faith, but I'm going to make sure I do all the other types of things to make sure, get all the ceremonies too, to make sure I get in there. But as Jesus said, um, you cannot serve two masters. Eventually one will sort of push out the other. Is Jesus enough? Or are you still saying, no, I still need to do the ceremonies. I still need to be righteous. I still need to do the works. That's the only way God will accept me. And he says, in the end, that leads to wrath. And hopefully that understanding of our fallenness only leads us right back to Jesus as the only way we'll ever get into a right standing before God. Faith is made the First thing to say about faith is it's voided when it tries to get mixed with our own righteousness and rather than trusting solely in the work of God. Verses 16 and 17, faith has God's grace and guarantee as its object. God's grace and his guarantee as its object object. Faith always takes an object. Um, He says here that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. So this blessing of Abraham goes out to those who do eventually receive the Torah, Israel, um, and the whole nations, all the nations, uh, because he's all are blessed through Abraham. And it says here, Abraham becomes the father of us all. Even though uh, I'm not descended from Abraham in any way, I did Ancestry DNA. Anyone ever done the Ancestry DNA? I am 0% Jewish, so, which is not a surprise, I have to say. Uh, my wife, however, is 4% Jewish. So she does have some slight descendancy from Abraham. But neither, either way, both of us would say Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, as the old children's song went. He's the father of our faith, those who, one who trusted God. It says, It is written, I have made you the father of many nations, not just Israel, but now all of Christianity around the world. And he defines then who God is, the one he has put his faith in. And this is how he describes it God, whom he believes, gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that do not exist. That's who God is, the one who can bring to life that which is dead, spiritually or otherwise, and the one who can create things out of nothing. Faith always takes an object. When we say we are saved by faith, it really isn't faith that saves us. (laughs) It's really the means we get to what saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us, right? Faith is trust, and trust is in something. What are you trusting in? That's the object of your faith. If somebody says, well, I have faith, the next question should be, in what? (laughs) Having faith itself doesn't mean anything yet. What what are your trust in? In fact, uh, the faith is only as strong as the object in which you're trusting. Maybe if somebody says, I have faith in snake oil, right? Back in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, this was a real big thing in the West, they sold snake oil which was simply oil made from rattlesnakes. It's this sort of magic cure-all for any types of ailments that we might have. And there were snake oil salesmen, right? Just that's where that term came from. And people believed, if I drank this oil, it would cure me of all of my ailments. Well, they actually tested Most of it wasn't even made from rattlesnakes. It was just mineral water, and the whole thing was just a big scam. Well, faith doesn't do anything in that situation. Faith in a particular politician, well... Maybe he or she is a good politician. Maybe they'll disappoint in time. Most likely they will. I have faith in this bridge. Well, is the bridge sort of like those Indiana Jones bridges, you know, that are falling apart? And I'm not sure how much faith you want to put in it. It depends on the bridge. Or as I mentioned, the illustration of an airplane, my favorite illustration of faith, faith is getting on the airplane, depends on the strength of the airplane. If it's a broken down airplane that has a broken, you know, one of the engines is out and, not sure you want to put faith in it. Faith is only as strong as the object in which we place our faith in. If somebody says, I have faith in general, sometimes we sort of use that as a way of saying you're a trusting person, or maybe even just a spiritual person, a religious person, or that's simply what we mean. That's not what saves. It's the object of our faith. And what is the object of our faith? The grace and guarantee of God. He describes God here as the one who gives grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You can have favor from someone because you've done stuff that they like. (laughs) That's not grace. Grace is when you get favor from someone even though you don't deserve it. It's unmerited, and yet we have the favor of God. Sometimes grace has been sort of used as an acronym. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense it's pretty good if you like acronyms to help memorize things we get the riches of God at the expense of Christ and what he has done grace by definition is a gift John Stott says for grace gives and faith takes faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive the what grace offers that's pretty good faith is receiving what grace is giving that's what it is by definition And God guarantees. He gives a promise. Now you and I, we make promises all the time. Sometimes we keep them. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes unforeseen circumstances come up. And, you know, we say, uh, I can't tell you how many, when I was first a pastor, first started as a pastor, I would talk to people, invite them to church, and they would say, oh yeah, I'll be there Sunday. And I thought that meant that they would be there Sunday. (laughs) I would say, literally about 90% of the time, they will not be there Sunday. Uh, I didn't realize that that's how it works so people but god's guarantees are always followed through he's trustworthy and we can hold on to him god gives life to the dead we're going to see in a little bit how that applies to abraham in his own life god gives life to a dead body in a dead womb i should say we see of course in the resurrection of jesus god gives life to the dead literally raising jesus from the dead And I think this is an application for us spiritually. We are spiritually dead outside of Christ until God gives life and breathes the Spirit of God into us. He calls into being the things that are not. He's the creator. He's the one who makes everything. Uh, Everything has to come from somewhere, right? That's sort of one of the most basic laws of physics. I'm not a scientist, but I do know this. That matter can be neither created nor destroyed. So where did it all come from? At some point, it had to have a beginning, right? I couldn't, you know, one of the theories, it's, it was always here, which I think is nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. So if it can't be created and it can't be destroyed, some, at some point, there had to be someone or something that made it all, right? And what do we read in the beginning of Genesis? And God said, let there be, and there was. God is the only one who creates what's called ex nihilo, takes and makes something from nothing. Which only makes sense. This is a big deal in the Middle Ages, where they talked about God as the unmoved mover, the first creator, the one outside of our physical universe who could set things into existence. He calls into being the things that do not exist. And friends, He's worthy of our faith, He's worthy of our trust, of our belief. He is an object, the object of our faith, that is ultimately the real medicine for the soul not the snake oil, the true king of kings, not a faulty politician, the solid bridge towards life in the jet that will get us to where we need to go. Faith, verse 18 to 21, not only must it always take an object, faith exists even when we cannot now see, right? Even when we cannot now see. And he talks about this in relation to Abraham at first. Uh, Abraham trusted God and his guarantee and his grace even when he couldn't see. He couldn't see the outcome of it. It says, in hope he believed against hope. I love that because it's a contradiction, right? You say, how can that be? That's how can he believe, uh, how can he have hope against hope? Um, It's a contradiction, but we all know what he's talking about, right? He hopes in the face of hopelessness. Even when it didn't seem possible, he continued to trust God. It's kind of like the the father in the New Testament who brings his his, uh, demon-possessed son to Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to have faith. And the father says, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief, right? How do you believe and have unbelief? We know what that's like, I think, personally, practically speaking, to trust God and yet still be struggling to trust God. Here's Abraham in the face of what is hopelessness. He hopes God. Why is it hopeless? Because again, God gives him this amazing promise. Go, you're going to be a father of many nations. You're going to have multiple offspring. You're going to bless the whole world. Sand, again, sand of the uh, seas, uh, the stars of the sky. And Abraham has already now reached 100 years of age. And has no kids. Well, has no kids with his wife Sarah. And his body is as good as dead. Actually, literally what it says in the Greek is his body is dead. <laughs> Meaning, he doesn't, he doesn't have the ability to produce children anymore. And then you look at his wife Sarah, the situation doesn't get any better. She's 75 years old, well past childbearing age, and she's been a barren. She's been unable to bear children her entire life. She's never had a single child. And it says here, no unbelief made him waver. Well... No unbelief made him waver entirely. (laughs) If you read the story, uh, Abraham does struggle a little bit to trust God, but ultimately, nothing makes him waver. He continues to trust God's promise. He's going to deliver on what he said. He's fully convinced that God is able to do what he promises. He's the creator who can call things into existence that don't exist, he's the one who can bring life from the dead. In fact, one of the hardest moments of Abraham's life is when his son Isaac is now born, has reached a sort of young age, and God says, Go sacrifice your son. Now, not only would that be extremely difficult because he loves his son, simply that he loves his son so much, but all the promises of God are now resting in this one little boy. And now you want me to sacrifice him? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. I've trusted you for a hundred years for this child. And as it says in Hebrews, he reasoned to himself, well, if this is what God calls, he's simply going to have to bring him back from the dead. He trusts God, even in the face of hopelessness. If you don't know the story, God stops him before he would ever sacrifice his son. It was ultimately a test of his faith. But faith must often be in what is unseen. Now, contrary to popular definition, faith doesn't have to be in the unseen. Um, again, we think sometimes faith means against the evidence, or faith is in things we're not seeing. No, faith just simply means trust. As we saw in the video, we trust things all the time. Um, I trust, I have faith in certain people. I certainly have faith in my wife, right? I have faith in certain medicine. I'm not, you know, not an anti-medicine person. I have faith in certain objects, like actual bridges and planes and so forth, all the time. And I can see them for myself. Faith simply means trust. But yes, faith sometimes has to be in the unseen. And really especially when it comes to God, because God himself is unseen. He's an eternal spirit. Even our faith in Jesus is in someone who lived 2,000 years ago that none of us have seen in person. Uh, I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble, but the pictures we have of Jesus... They're not right, okay? (laughs) Most of them arrived during uh, the Middle Ages, and they picture Jesus as a sort of handsome European uh, middle-aged male. That's just not what he looked like. He probably looked like the average first-century Jew. We have to have faith in promises. Promises usually are not seen things. They're simply someone's word. And promises are usually something about the future, and the future, by its very definition, is something that can't be seen. It's something yet to be. And the real test of faith in scripture again and again is, can you trust God? Can you have faith in him? Can you hope even in when it is unseen? Can you trust him because his character is trustworthy? Because his word is secure? Because God never breaks his word and he's always faithful. Can we trust him? David Garland in the Tyndall commentary series says, salvation is like God standing before a dark void and creating the world. Standing before Sarah's withered womb and bringing forth a child. Standing before a, a dank tomb and raising Jesus from the realm of the dead. Humans can receive God's salvific work only by faith. God can do what is unseen, what is supernatural. Can we trust him? Before we move on, I wonder, are there are areas of your life, my life, that God is calling to trust him. And we can't see it, but he calls us to trust him. Maybe God is calling you to trust in who Jesus is. Is He really the Son of God? Is he really divine? A lot of people would look back and say, "Jesus was a great man. He was a great teacher, and there's a lot we can learn about him. In fact, if you went and told that to average person, there'd be no debate. Yeah, sure, he was a great man who lived a long time ago. We're saying more than that. We're saying He is the Son. God in the flesh who has come to us. Is he really who he said He is? You trust him? Maybe you're struggling with faith in the Bible. You know, people say, you know, the Bible was written by men. Yeah, that's never been under debate. (laughs) We know it's written by humans who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's more personal. Maybe you're struggling with God's plan over your own life. Like Abraham. Things aren't going right. (laughs) This isn't the way it was supposed to be. I had certain plans of where I'd be at this point in time, and everything's not following the way it's supposed to do. Do you say, I'm giving up, or do you say, I'm going to continue to follow you and trust you, Lord? To whom would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Maybe it's trust in one of the promises of Scripture, or all the promises of Scripture. Maybe you're facing opposition. You have some adversaries. Some tension, conflict going on in your life. Maybe it's spiritual. It's just an oppression over your life. These last two years have felt a certain weight, haven't they? And to continue to trust Him in the face of things not seen. Maybe it's heaven itself. We struggle with that. Is the grave really the end? I mean, is there really anything after death? Can I really trust God with life eternal? Faith often calls us, not against the evidence, towards the evidence. God has always shown himself faithful and always fulfilled his word. but can we trust Him in what is unseen? And finally, in 22 to 25, faith today is explicitly in the work of Jesus Christ. Explicitly in the work of Jesus Christ. He ends with a description of the gospel. He says here that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Again, he puts God as the object, God who is faithful, God who is always sure to his word, and he receives the righteousness of God by faith. It was counted to him. And he says this was written not just for Abraham. This is true of Abraham. All the stories of the Bible are true of the individuals that it was telling them. But they were written down. Why were they written down? For future generations. Uh, for us here today. And people throughout all of history. You know, It struck me before that. Um, I'm preaching on, you know, let's say, Romans here. Um, 500 years before I was born, people were teaching and preaching Romans. 500 years after I am dust in the ground, people will be teaching and preaching Romans, right? 2,000 years. 3,000 years ago, people were teaching Genesis. And it will be here long after me. God's word is secure here it's written for future generations and then he defines the gospel in this last section uh, verse 25 which is oftentimes uh, quoted in fact uh, Charles Hodge famous theologian said this verse is a comprehensive statement of the gospel the one who raised Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification see The idea is that our trust now is more explicitly in Jesus. Revelation, the book, not the book of Revelation, but Revelation from God, the Bible, is sort of progressive. Abraham only understood certain things about God in his time. Again, those are almost prehistoric times, but he trusted in what he knew about God. Didn't have Jesus yet, right? Later on, Moses receives the Torah, sets up the sacrificial system as God commands. Now Israel is responsible to follow what God has revealed up to that point. Then eventually, Jesus Christ comes, he dies, he rises from the dead. It's not enough to continue to hold on to temple sacrifices. In fact, the temple is destroyed anyway. But now we have the fuller revelation. We live after Christ, and we're responsible to know the full message that God has given us, that Christ has died for our sins and rose for our justification. By the way, just as a side note, it's all different problems when we mess this up. People take Old Testament commands and say, how come we're not doing this or that or whatever, and again, Revelation is sort of progressive today. It's complete, but it is progressive. And for us today, our faith is more fully in what Abraham only knew as shadows. We understand Jesus Christ. That his death is crucial. Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's the one who is the Lamb of God who dies in our place. He's the sin bearer. He is delivered up. For our trespasses, God demands a judgment for our sin, and Jesus takes that judgment on Himself. His resurrection, by the way, notice this the centrality of the resurrection. Don't ever leave out the resurrection. Uh, Jesus didn't just die for our sins, He died for our sins and rose from the dead, right? I mean, there were tens of thousands of people who were crucified, sadly, by the Roman Empire. How do we single out the fact that Jesus' death was truly atoning? He's the only one who rose from the dead. He's the one who came back to life in a body that is immortal. That's why Easter, by the way, is such a big deal. Without Easter, without the resurrection, there is no justification. There is no getting into a right status before God. And friends, that's why missions are so important too. I think Pastor Mike's sermon from last week. It's it's not enough just to have faith in general. People all over the world have faith. In fact, it's more common to have faith than to be an atheist. And atheism is very rare throughout the world, actually. But faith has to have a very particular object. It's only as strong as what we trust in. And what we're called to have faith in is Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. He alone is the medicine for the soul, the bridge. life the jet plane that gets us to the promised land the king of kings the water of life the living water the bread of life the shelter and refuge for sinners abraham's faith is an example to us of faith in jesus christ at this point here at the end of the chapter as we come to a close paul is going to transition out of abraham so he's done with abraham going to move on to other broader issues it's so important for him to define what we mean when we say faith faith is opposed to trust in ourselves and the law faith always takes an object and is only as strong as the object in which it trusts in faith is often called to be in unseen things like promises and for us we know fully that the object of our faith is jesus christ and his work That doesn't mean it doesn't affect how we live our lives, of course. In fact, what you believe, what you have faith in, the object of your faith will shape how you live your life. Faith always has consequences. If you believe in naturalism, that there's nothing beyond this world, that will shape how you live your life. You believe there's no judgment, there's no answering, there's no accountability at the end, you'll live your life accordingly. If you believe... Uh, sort of this uh, yin and yang sort of mentality, then you'll try to be better a better person than you're not, right? Better than, do more good than evil in this world. What you believe shapes how you live. And if our faith is truly in the Lord Jesus, the one who lived in perfect love, who loved God truly with all his heart, loved the Father truly with all his heart and soul, his mind and his strength, and loved his neighbor as himself, in fact, his whole coming was a service to us and that shapes how we live that means we're here to love and to serve it means we're here to come and help a brother going through grief help prepare a meal in the kitchen help minister by music reach out to the family it means we're here to love as Christ has loved us Friends, faith, true faith, of course, shapes the way we live our lives. May our faith be solidly, clearly in the Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Well, gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of Romans. In fact, that's the, the whole sermon series, Gospel Clarity. Um, help us, Lord, restore and strengthen our faith As we continue to study your word. To grasp what this gospel is all about. This gospel that not only shook the Roman Empire upside down. But changed the whole of Western society. And now all of the world is being reached by this good news. 100 million Christians in China. Africa being utterly shaped by the spread of the gospel. Lord thank you for this good news. That you say to those who are sinners like us come and receive this gift of grace by simple faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.